All right, team, let me tell you about NewZest, clean plant-based nutrition products to meet the demands of modern life. And I'm super excited to announce that they are a sponsor of Wikipedia. With over a decade of experience and a presence in more than 20 countries worldwide, NewZest has emerged as a leader in providing innovative solutions for those seeking healthier and more sustainable choices. In a world where people are looking for clean labels, easily digestible ingredients, and allergen-free options, NewZest delivers and totally has you covered. Clean Lean Protein is a plant-based protein powder and contains all nine essential amino acids. It encourages recovery, vitality, muscle repair, and growth, and helps you hit your protein requirements, which you know I am all about. One of my favorite products is their Good Green Vitality. It's the gold standard in multi-nutrients. It's designed to make complex nutrition simple. The Super Blend is carefully formulated to address all aspects of health. 75 ingredients working together to support everything from digestion, immunity and healthy aging to stress, energy and cognition in one daily serve. Grab yours today, guys, with a sweet 20% discount for being a listener of the show with the code Wikipedia over at their website. And we will pop a link in the show notes for you to be able to do that. All right, now back to the show. Welcome. Hi. I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, it's Mickey here. You're listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I speak to R.D. Dykeman, Richard Dykeman, about low carbohydrate diets for people with type 1 diabetes. I came across R.D. Dykeman maybe about 10 years ago with the development of a group, Type 1 Grit, which was all about how adolescents with type 1 diabetes manage their condition with low carbohydrate diets. And today on the podcast, we speak about how R.D.'s life was turned upside down when his son Dave was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in 2013, and how the discovery of Richard Burns Steen's book, The Diabetes Solution, transformed the management of Dave's condition, helped improve RD's own health, and was the catalyst for RD to take on the job of making that information on how to adopt a low-carbohydrate approach accessible to literally tens if not hundreds of thousands of people. He's responsible for setting up the Type 1 Grit group, which I mentioned, of which there is now published data on the success of these individuals. And he's also responsible for hundreds of hours of interviews with Dr. Bernstein, who has himself managed his own Type 1 diabetes for over 40 years with a low-carbohydrate diet. And Dr. Bernstein was diagnosed in his 40s, early 40s, I believe. And this is all in an effort to educate and inform people on another approach outside of what conventional medicine would have us believe is the only way to manage Type 1 diabetes. 
Adi and I also discuss common myths that circulate about low carbohydrate diets and type 1 diabetes and so much more. You are going to be so glad that you tuned into this week's episode. In the show notes, I have popped the paper that was published on the management of type 1 diabetes with a low carbohydrate diet, of which Adi Dykeman is an author of. I've also popped a link to Dr. Bernstein's book, The Diabetes Solution, and to where you can find Adi on Twitter. So Adi Dykeman is a theoretical physicist and producer of Dr. Richard Bernstein's Diabetes University, which is that series of free videos on YouTube on how best to manage diabetes. He's also co-founder of Type 1 Grit, an awesome Facebook group for folks aged between 1 to 81 who follow Dr. Bernstein's low-carb approach to achieving healthy, normal, non-diabetic blood sugars. And this is possible. So absolutely check out those resources and um, R.D. Dykeman on Twitter as he is a wealth of information. Just before we kick into the conversation, I would just like to remind you that the best way to support this podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast listening platform. That increases the visibility of the podcast out there and amongst literally thousands of other podcasts. So more people get the opportunity to learn from the guests that I have on the show, like RD. So please enjoy this conversation I have with him today. Be, should be fine. I understand. Cool. I get it. Yeah. And and where are you based? I'm in Honolulu. Honol- okay. Cool. Cool. I wasn't sure. I where knew- are you? I'm in Auckland, New Zealand. That's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. 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 And uh, love Honolulu. Actually, where are you in Honolulu? So uh, Waikiki is where I originally landed back in the late '90s, and um, but now I live on the outskirts of Honolulu in Hawaii Kai. Amazing. Adi, and where did you originally, where were you originally, like if not Hawaii? I'm originally from Detroit and uh, grew up there and I went to the University of Michigan and then uh, I went to graduate school in physics at the University of Minnesota. You're so a back... theoretical physicist. Is that, yes. is that what I would call you? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So I, I went to the University of Minnesota and that was a cold place. And, uh, and I got to come to Hawaii during my physics career. And like a lot of people, I really fell in love with, um, with Hawaii. Yeah. And, um, instead of, you know, going to Silicon Valley or going to wall street, like most of my friends were doing, I decided to come to Hawaii and, uh, with really no plan, but things, things, Things worked out, so I, I'm still here. Yeah, evidently. And uh, well, I must say I'm slightly envious. I love Hawaii. I've been about five or six times, and just absolutely love it. It's just it's so. I don't know. I mean, obviously the climate, but just the feel of the place is so nice. Yeah, I love it. I still love it. Yeah, every day I wake up happy to be here. Yeah. You know? Oh, that is amazing. So, um, Adi, first, I mean. I've got to say theoretical physicist sounds like mind boggling to me as to what you might do in your usual sort of everyday <laughs> life. Although that 
probably has changed somewhat over the course of the last 10 years. Um, can we kick off with, I mean, I've got so many questions that I want to ask you around type 1 diabetes, low carbohydrate diets. I've had Andrew Kutnick on the show before, Dom D'Agostino. Um, I've had mm-hmm. others who are very, um, Eric Westman, uh, people that you obviously will be sort of corresponding with. You know, and- I just... Uh- I just talked to Eric Wasserman yesterday. Ah, oh, he's such a great man. Just love him. Mm-hmm. And as I was sort of preparing for our interview, RD, I, um, so obviously, you know, I'm well aware of the low carbohydrate diet for type 1 diabetes, obviously type 2 diabetes. It almost feels like a no brainer, but I feel like there's a real stigma or there's something about a type, about a low carb diet for type 1 diabetes where people are just a little bit more, oh, um, cautious would be, putting it lightly and some are absolutely against it and people in the profession as well. I came across this website and it was a registered dietitian and she had diets you shouldn't do if you have type one diabetes and she listed a bunch of them. I know it was awful. I was so embarrassed for her because she, one of them was the Dr. (laughs) Bernstein's diet saying it was outdated and unsustainable despite the Uh fact that Dr. Bernstein's been on this diet for over 40 years. Like, and I felt so, I felt outraged and I just thought, gosh, this must be what RD, I, I'm sure you don't feel, well, I, I'm not sure how you feel and I would really like to ask you, like, like these are things that you must see every single day. That's right. Yeah. So the, the funny thing is that, um, you know, at, at, at the beginning of the diagnosis, the big mystery for me and, and um, for Dave, who's my type one son and, and my wife, um, was how we could keep Dave healthy and complication free because controlling blood sugars is what prevents the diabetic complications. We all know that. Yeah. And, uh, so, but that mystery was solved rather quickly that that's primarily because of the Bernstein book. The, however, the mystery that remains is the mystery that you're talking about right now, which is the weird uh, undercurrent in the diabetes, really the type one community, not, not even so much in the type two community. It's the, uh, this weird undercurrent in the type one community. And it seems so that's, that's my mystery. And I have some, I have some hypotheses that I've developed about why it, why it remains and how to get rid of it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a mystery and it's a frustrating mystery because you see a lot of, um, you, you, you see a lot of agony and impending agony that's being foisted on people who are voiceless and they don't have the wherewithal to do what is required as far as uh, finding information and standing up to their um, somewhat authoritative care providers to to help their, themselves or their children. And uh, so it's this awful situation, and it it seems to be never ending. Bernstein calls it the it's like the never ending uh, war or whatever. It just uh, it just doesn't seem to get solved. 
But anyway, that's a that's a one hour conversation we can have. <laughs> I know, and and I certainly like I I I I'm sure this is going to come up numerous times, and aspects of this frustration will come up um, throughout our conversation. Can we begin, Adi, just with your own personal um, story, uh, discovering? the type one diagnosis, like how that sort of came about and then how you discovered Dr. Bernstein's book at that time. Yeah. Right. Well, my son was nine and his diagnosis was not that unusual. He, he developed, um, symptoms, what I, which I did not recognize of, of type one. And, um, his doctor missed the diagnosis as well. Both of those things are very common because type one is rare enough that you might not have a um, experience in your life uh, for yourself or anybody who's had it. There are parents who know somebody like a cousin or a friend who had it and they catch it early, but we did not catch it early. And um, so Dave and neither did the doctor. So Dave ended up having a, uh, a, a fairly near death experience in ketoacidosis where he, um, you know, I can show you the, the pictures of him at diagnosis with his shirt off. And it was, it was a real traumatic experience for everybody. Yeah. Um, but, um, but it wasn't unusual and that happens quite frequently. And that's a, that's a whole, that's a whole topic to, dis- to, to discuss really is, is how, how you can detect things early, but, but the but the main point of our story is that when we learned what was happening when we tried to follow the standard approach to diabetes management which is taught to everyone this this concept called carb counting where you you come up with a a, a meal system which is close to 50% carbohydrate. It looks like this food pyramid, which you probably have something like that in New Zealand, some it's kind similar. of government grain-based system of eating that they try to, fo- they try to foist that on, on type one diabetics and it doesn't work. And we could see that it doesn't work in the data that we were collecting. Mm-hmm. So, and, you, so um, you were monitoring, you were writing down the, the, what David would be eating, Dave would be eating and then assessing how much insulin you were providing and then seeing yes. what happened to his blood sugar. Yes. And, and, um, because I'm a scientist, I thought I would be smart enough to figure out how to do what other people might not be able to do because of a lack of something. And what I discovered was, and right about this, this is in parallel, my wife was watching over my shoulder, do these experiments with Dave for the first month. What I discovered with the models that I was building and the, uh, this is back, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, what I discovered was that the process, the, the, the blood glucose that was the result of this process was it, it had a, a, a character to it, which you could identify in sci- scientific terms as stochastic, meaning that it, it was a random result that was occurring, meaning that you couldn't repeat it. The, the goal was that, oh, if we, kept, if we kept things consistent, we could eventually hone in on the solution. And that's when you have a system 
which can be optimized to a, a nice, uh, I don't know if you see my hands, but yeah, a, a, a nice yeah. convex system. But this was not such a thing. It was, uh, instead, it would be that uh, you would repeat things. And I recognize that as this is a system where the inherent noise, the inherent system noise drives the process beyond its limit of control. And um, so I was having this epiphany. And um, meanwhile, my wife just ordered, she, she found the Bernstein book on Amazon because it, be, it became sort of foolish that we were continually trying to feed meals of carbohydrate when Dave could just eat an omelet and things would be significantly better. And, and, you know, there was like this, when we talk earlier about, um, why is this, it's, it's not just like, there's, there's a lot of reasons why this carbohydrate approach persists. And one of them is that there's a, a myriad list of myths that exist in the type one world. And one of those myths well, several of them has to do with a child's need for carbohydrate. Kids need carbs for growth. They need carbs for energy. They need carbs for their brain. All those kind of things you, you, you've had soak into your psyche over your, if you're not a food expert, or even if you are a food expert. And, uh, you know, so this idea of a low carb diet for a kid on its face was something like, it it sounded wrong and it sounded like something unless you had some conviction and some knowledge you could easily be thrown off that path by someone who claimed that they were some sort of expert just like the situation you just referred to earlier yeah okay so ad like how so obviously you guys adopted the bernstein approach and we will and i really want to get into the sort of what the approach is and i know there are some some rules that we can probably you know uh let the listeners or um share with the listeners in addition to of course i want to address the myths that are out there but when you right. when you guys discovered this and started adopting it then went back to Dave's diabetes management team or however that looked what was your initial response we knew enough to keep it on the down low ah, great. Um, so my interest was not in getting a, a stamp of approval from yeah. our doctor and we were lucky enough to have a doctor who did not pry we did go this is a story we we were so freaked out by the initial diagnosis that we visited my mom in cincinnati and that's where the one of the top diabetes centers is located and we thought well we only want the best for dave let's move from honolulu to cincinnati and so he can have the greatest care. So we, we were actually visiting. So we, we went in for an appointment and it was an absolute disaster on every level. And they, they had no idea how to generate normal blood sugars. And they were very authoritative in that they wanted to take your data from you. They wanted to know exactly what was being eaten. They wanted to know, uh, uh that was an unusual experience to feel like you were under the boot of the Gestapo rather than having a doctor who was working for you. And, um, and the doctor seems to seem to know almost nothing about the condition. So, uh, we were actually glad to go back to our doctor who sort of, he could see Dave's 
blood sugar results and he could see Dave was doing well and okay, you know, let me know if you need anything. That was his, uh, his point of view. And he's always been like that. So. Well, that is awesome. And there are doctors out there just like the one you described, like your, your family doctor, you know, like he can see obviously that David was thriving under this. I have to say, just as an aside, there are doctors that a lot of the time, because I'm a nutritionist and I often want my clients to get blood markers measured and stuff like that. And I say to them, I'm like, you know, just say that you'll pay because of course they've, because we've already talked about the fact that it might cost them a little bit of money. But even when my clients suggest, you know, say I'm working with a nutritionist and we'd like to get these blood markers done. I'm happy to pay. The doctors refuse like it's their right to refuse. And I, and I understand resourcing and, and things like that, but ultimately I sort of think your doctor, exactly what you said, your doctor's supposed to work for you. They're not supposed to be there giving you the, the tick of approval or disapproval or, but I think people are, a lot of people I talk to are unaware of that. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's very, you know, it's very scary to go up against authority. Right. So. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Dave, with regards to one of those first things that you said about um, Dave was um, one of the myths of, you know, children needing glucose and needing carbohydrate for energy, the growth and development needs it. Like, was it yeah. just a, like, obviously I imagine that you both probably would have thought that too. And then you discovered Dr. Bernstein's book and then you, you started researching a little bit more for yourself. Is that, was that about right? That's exactly right. So we, we, um, and we started right away implementing his procedure. And I think my biggest regret about the whole process was that, uh, well, you could say it didn't take long, right? It did take us. We looked at, we looked at the, the Amazon book order date. It took a month, but, um, my biggest regret, it's not really a regret, but my biggest wish would be that we would have been, see the book. If you look at the book, it's a big reference book. It's for everything that he knows about diabetes, type one and type two. I needed someone to sit with me for an hour and say, here's what you need to do with Dave. You know, here's how you use insulin. And, and just in a day, um, we could have had all the information that we needed. Um, so it took a while for me to distill all that information from his book of, you know, a few months. And, um, I, I wish it wasn't, I wish it wasn't that hard, but there is, there is a pretty steep learning curve to the whole thing. Right. Yeah. So it is what it is, I guess. Yeah. And of course we, um, I want to talk about the resources and stuff that you've co-created with Dr. Bernstein to help right. digest, to help people digest that information and make it super easy to, or as simple as possible, I suppose, to be able to implement right. that. Um, with regards to, um, to what you say about the growth and development, I've, I mean, I've heard that too. And I, and people often refer to the early ketogenic trials of children with seizures as, you know, proof that children need carbohydrate to grow because when those children were on classical ketogenic diets, they had a stunted growth pattern, which is quite a bit different to actually the Bernstein approach. And people just get confused about the low carb recommendation for someone with type one diabetes and, you know, classical keto, which is another therapeutic approach, but it's quite different, isn't it? They're very different. And if if you're doing that classic keto approach, which I don't even know the extent of, but we'll just stick to type one. That's, that's my wheelhouse. Yeah. 
we, we in that classical keto, we're, we're concerned with driving ketones higher. In the Bernstein aspect, the emphasis is not on ketones at all. It's on normal blood glucose and it's on uh, uh, protein foods. So the diet is a protein emphasis diet. It's not a low carb, high fat diet per se. It's not that the diet isn't high fat. It's that that acronym LCHF doesn't properly translate the emphasis that he puts on protein nutrition. And if you're, if you're a parent and you want your child to grow that, and you, and your child's type one, the two things that you actually want are protein nutrition and normal blood glucose. So we know we, you know, carbohydrate has nothing to do with it except for the, for helping out with the caloric need, but you, you can, you can reach your caloric goals on a very low carbohydrate diet for a kid. And we know that we know that by inspection of, of the, you know, the, the, the meal plans, but we also know that by looking at the kids who are doing this now, they're all developing beautifully and reaching their maximum potential. So it's, uh, it's protein and normal blood glucose, not carbohydrate and high blood sugars that are going to foster proper growth and development. Wait, how, how does that uh, disruption in blood sugar levels that come when you are unable to match your carbohydrate with insulin, like how does that impact on growth? Because I don't think people are so aware of how detrimental that can be. Okay, so in the, in the standard approach, um, this, this kind of goes to why low-carb diets are essential and why they work in the type 1 world. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with any kind of nutritional argument. You see, the, the point is that you, well, if you remember what I said earlier, that this standard approach that we tried generated a stochastic result, meaning that the blood sugars were not predictable. And you can see that on anybody that's following it, uh, the standard approach, you can see that on their blood glucose traces. From one day to the next, there are just wild oscillations. If you overlaid, let's say, 14, 24-hour periods of someone who's eating a standard high-carb diet, the, the graphs would be all over the place. And we can pull one of those up if you need to see it, because I have them. That's definitely different than the kinds of blood glucose that you've talked about, Andrew Kwitnik or Dave or anyone that's following a low-carb approach. And what's happening is that when you're trying to cover rapid-acting carbohydrate with a fast-acting insulin, it's impossible to get a perfect match of those two things. There's enough system noise in play between your digestive system, how well the insulin's absorbed, how well you counted the meal, et cetera, et cetera. There's enough noise in play that those things will never match up and the shapes of the curves will never match up. And so that's enough noise to drive your system into a random result. But when you're doing a low carb diet and you're and the bulk of your insulin that you're using is actually to cover the protein foods. Most endocrinologists and dietitians don't even realize that you need protein. I need insulin to cover protein. But protein is so slowly digested 
that when you use an intermediate acting insulin or if you use a pump that has a delayed uh, bolus setting, then even if you're off a little bit with that same system noise, you get blood sugars which are slowly varying and can easily be corrected before they get out of range. And by range, I mean, you know, 70 or what you guys are like, let's say uh, four to six millimoles or, or in our range, 70 to 100 milligrams per deciliter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the thing. It's the, it's the physics of injected insulin com- that, that favor a low carb diet. And that's a totally different thing than why low carb diets work so well with type two diabetes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, completely. And I remember Andrew talked about just how complex matching insulin and carbohydrate was because all of the factors that impact on how we utilize carbohydrate because you know, you might go for a walk after a meal. You might you might right. not have slept properly. Like you might right. feel stressed, like all of these factors. And mm-hmm. I have to say I was quite so when I was reading on that dietitian's page that it was an outdated approach. And the reason she said that was because insulin therapies have moved on since Dr. Yeah, Bernstein wrote his book. Physiology no, doesn't move this on. This is though. the main. This is the main problem. Is that it's it's really similar to someone sitting down at a slot machine and thinking that if they you know just they move their body this way or they pull it fast or slow that somehow they can conjure out the result they want and then they get they get a good result every once in a while. So they think, okay, you know, I'm on to yeah. something. Yes. So. It, it, but they're not, yeah. it's just that you get lucky. You can see that in the, in the social media groups, people will say, I ate pasta and boom, my blood sugar was great because I used a dual wave bolus. And it's, it's like, you just got triple sevens on your slot machine, but next time you pull it, you're going to lose. And over time, your losses are going to outnumber your wins and you're going to have consequences to that kind of thinking. But just like with gambling, there's this psychological payoff. So there is with eating pasta and all the cookies and cakes and all those foods that excite probably the same brain structures that gambling lights do. So it's a pretty good analogy on multiple levels. It it really is. Adi, do you know when I think it like up... I imagine it is the case. So when I touched base with you about a podcast, what I saw, which really just reminded me, like, oh, I saw a tweet of yours and I'm like, that's right, I really want to chat to RD about this because you said type 1, people with type 1 diabetes deserve to have normal blood sugar levels. Something You used language which almost made me think, and it reminded me that, that doct- there are doctors that I've seen who do not like people with type one diabetes to have normal blood sugar levels because right and now what is the what is the block there like what is it about the blood sugar management or what they see as management which is actually high blood sugar why is that the recommendation well if you ask bernstein this question which he's the good guy to ask because he was the originator of this idea yeah and he spent his whole life trying to get it accepted into the professional associations and the literature and so on so you know he's he's 
been on the front lines alone most of his life trying to fight for people with diabetes. And he will tell you that the doctors uh, are not willing to stray from any legal uh, entanglements because the professional association guidelines are what they are. And um, they allow for lots of carbohydrate, lots of variability, very high blood sugars. And if the doctor says, no, I want you to have normal blood sugars, then if they have any hypoglycemia, uh, the doctor can get sued. So that's kind of like, that's one of the main stories. The other story is that using insulin is not easy. And this method, this low carb method is understood by nobody. It, uh, it is, it's, that is the most astonishing thing to me that we found this book in one month. And yet there are thousands of physicians who are erudite, educated people who are so incurious that they've never contemplated even once that there's a potential that their patients could be running normal glycemia and, and, and have not stumbled across the book. And it, it's it, as a physicist, you know, we are constantly looking on the vast shores of the universe for tiny little seashells. That is our jobs. And everybody is fighting for that tiny little seashell and to get there first. Whereas with this um, endocrinology problem, it seems like no one is curious. You know, I, 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 we've been very vocal and very, um, uh, we can talk about the advocacy, but I'm a very loud advocate for type one diabetes. I have never been approached by a single endocrinologist. And I'm a, I'm a co-author of a paper that got covered in the New York times. I've never been approached by an endocrinologist you would think someone would call and go, hey, I read about Dave's story. How do you cover protein with insulin? Or aren't you worried about how do you, how does Dave, or, you know, there's lots of questions that would come to your mind if you had been sending all your patients down the tubes for decades, but it's never happened. And, and Bernstein doesn't get any calls either, by the way. It's not like his phone is ringing off the hook. You know, teach me your method. My patients are doing so poorly. And yet every time we teach somebody to do this method in our social media groups, within a couple of weeks, the report back from the endocrinologist is, oh, you're the best patient we have in our group now, and you, you should run higher blood sugars anyway. So they acknowledge that the person's doing great, but then they tell the person that they should run higher blood sugars. They don't, you don't have to run normal blood sugars. Yeah. Wow. So we always we were always going to loop back to these crazy stories, right? Yeah. But the but the main idea is that there is a solution, there is a way out of this nightmare, and I I sometimes dare to, you know, type one is referred to as a disease, and I suppose it qualifies for a disease, but to to us, I find like the word condition is probably a better descriptor that Dave has this type one condition. I think. There's an idea there that, that this low-carb diet turns this disease into a condition because if we, if we could find a way to help all type 1s 
get access to this information, then they could follow this procedure and have the opportunity to run normal blood sugars and avoid the complications. And then we would, and then all we would have left is what a, a pain in the ass managing this condition is. And then we could start working on that. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I think, and I feel like it's almost at a point or it has been at the point that poor health outcomes are, are this inevitable um, outcome of type one diabetes, you know, and I, and I wonder whether parents and children are sort of, they have that information from the get go. As I understand it, Dave was actually aware, like he was educated in the potential pitfalls or the outcomes, the negative outcomes of type one diabetes and understands really well, you know, and, right. or, as it, like, obviously he's an adult, you know, he, he's an adult now, like 20 or is he 20, 19, 20? Uh, let me think. <laughs> he's going to be 20. Yeah. In That's a couple right. months. That's right. I remember yeah. I, I, I followed you back, I think in 2011 or something like that. So I remember him as a, as a, like a little kid, but, um, like even yeah. then though, I, as I understand it, he understood the dangers of, of, um, hyperglycemia for him, didn't he? Yeah. He, he, he understands that there are consequences. Um, and, uh, that's kind of the first step in developing some sense of accountability is understanding that there's some consequences. So do you feel that because I chat to parents and parents don't want their children to feel restricted. They don't want their children to feel left out. And I feel like the negative outcomes are almost brushed under the table or not as acknowledged. You know, what is that? They're never discussed. What do you think, RD? What is that about? Like, because it's not through lack of love or lack of wanting the best for their children, but it's almost like, that they just get they get afraid that their children are going to have this restricted lifestyle if they change their diet. So we we go back to the grand mystery of why uh, now originally we were shouting from the rooftops because most people didn't know, and I was very good. I was very good at shouting, and now a lot of people know because yeah. back when Dave was diagnosed and doing this. There was nobody else that we knew of. And now uh, if you go into any group and you say, oh, you know, uh, there's always going to be a low carb or who will make a comment. Right. Yeah. So that's a positive. But um, the question then is, well, why why are some people still doing? It? Are they not aware of the consequences? I will say uh, that the big surprise to me was not that people, well, people disregard the consequences, but you see, if you're going to raise a a type one child on a low carb diet, doing a low carb diet with all the temptations, if you're a child is a very challenging thing to do. So if I would have raised Dave and we would have been eating cake and ice cream and bagels and, and always making Dave like an omelet while we had spaghetti and stuff like that, it would not have been the right way to run a family. So what did we have to do? We, the only option we had was to do the same diet that Dave did. And that includes his little brother. And, and guess what? The food 
that we were eating before Dave was diagnosed, the high carb food is addictive. Yeah. And I went through, I, I didn't really believe that. Of course you had heard, you heard those things, Yeah. but I had, uh, you know, I went through like a period of a couple months that was an astonishing, uh, it's a, to quit, you know, my favorite Starbucks cookie and some of the things that I would eat. That was kind of like an astonishing experience. But the benefit was that my health, you know, dramatically improved. But that's, that's a big hurdle for most parents. Not only do they have, they have to change their own eating style. And you know how, I, I think if we sit back and we observe the world at large, what this addictive processed food has done to people um, as far as type 2 diabetes and, and obesity, because nobody wants to be obese and no one wants to have type 2 diabetes, yet everybody has type 2 diabetes now. It's, it's addictive foods. And so people, that's, that is the, when I talk to people who question whether carbohydrate is a addictive component of processed foods. The best example I can give them is that parents won't give it up even if their child is type one. Even if they're measuring this kid's blood sugar all day long and they're aware that this is going to cause their child to go straight down the tubes, they can't give up the carbohydrate. So what, do you, what, what chance do you have if you're, if you're just uh, part of a normal family system without any type 1 diabetes and you can always just say, ah, oh, we'll just, you know, we'll just eat some cereal or something like that. It's, it's an impossible situation. Adi, do you cover this stuff in the information that you put out there? Because this is, you know, and I know this as a nutritionist, you know, it's almost never it's not just the food, like it's never just the food that has to be changed, like changing that inner the sort of mindset that the mindset around it is like so exactly. important. Yep. Like how do you address that when, when you come up against it in your type one grit group or the forums and stuff that you're on? Well, you, you have to tell people the truth. And um, so when I get, of course, people do reach out. And uh, that is one of the first things that I tell people. And I've observed people for 10 years doing this. And I can tell you, there is not a single example that I know of where the child is successful, but the parents both go on with the way that they were eating before, which is like the normal high carb diet that everybody eats. Now, there are situations where maybe the mom will and the dad won't. And there are situations where maybe there are eight kids and, and the, only the, the type one child of, and the mom will, but one of the parents at least has to do it. But if both parents do it and the whole family does it, then you have a, a fighting chance. The, the, the problem again is that um, parents won't do it. And Bernstein alerted me to this problem too, because he's got stories of of, you know, he's got stories of like heartbreaking stories where you've got like a, a 14 year old girl, I think he had as a patient and the parents were both obese and they refused to give up their ice cream and chips. And, the uh, and, uh, it just didn't work. Uh, eventually the, you know, a kid is going to be susceptible to, that sort of temptation. So, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. 
And I um, and it's interesting because whenever I read something like this diet is unsustainable, I just roll my eyes at the judgment call that someone can make over someone else's sort of decision over whether or not something is sustainable or not. Like the benefits of well, one of the benefits of the diet for type one diabetes is, you know, as you've said, like they're just it's overwhelmingly positive. But two, like there are so many delicious foods that might not necessarily suit uh, someone in another context that are low carbohydrate, but there are very good substitutes out there that people that right. can be, you know, can be included in the diet. It isn't just chicken breast and broccoli. It's a non-issue. Once you get over your addiction, it's a non-issue and you don't even, so what usually happens is you get over your addiction, you fall in love with all these low carb methods, and then you get tired of that. And then after a few years, you just eat like, like in our family, it's, it's, um, you know, Dave's gone now, but he was back over the summer and it's like, we're just eating, you know, a, a protein food and a salad. And, and that's kind of like, uh, food is not, um, it, it doesn't have this. Um, so you say, Oh, you, you, you miss out. And it's like, no, I remember what it was like when food had a hold on me, when I would be looking into the refrigerator, like a zombie for something. <laughs> and now it's, it's like, I don't, I, you, you have control over the way you eat now. So it's a much, um, it's of much relief that there's no more lack of control. I would never want to go back to that. And that is a universal comment. It's not just me that says that. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, so true. So Adi, like obviously we've talked that the Dr. Bernstein approach is a is a higher protein, a normal blood sugar approach to diet. What are some other features of the diet for people who are unfamiliar with what even Dr. Bernstein's diet is? Are you able just to sort of briefly run through them for us? And of course, we're going to include links to to all the resources and stuff. Yeah, the the so the the food really is like. It, he has a, a, it goes by six, 12, 12. That's his breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And you're allowed up to six grams carb, 12 grams carb for lunch and 12 grams carb for dinner. And the point of that is not that you need any of that carbohydrate. The point is that he decided that you might need some vegetables in your diet. So the carbohydrate, the carbohydrate, the reason to eat any carbohydrate is probably some vitamins in your vegetables that you need. But again, the, the main thing is, you know, that you, you want to, uh, get your, your pro every meal has to be, is a protein based meal. And so, and so there's some interesting benefits that come for that. So I mentioned like, you're able to match those kinds of meals with, with insulin better. And that's really the big benefit is because diabetics die early. A type one diabetics will die, especially if you're diagnosed as a kid, you'll die 12, 15 years early. And along the way, you're going to develop a myriad set of complications, which will ruin your life. But there's so, be, but the normal blood sugars should be enough, but there's even more benefit because what we see now is 
because of people like the dietitian that you mentioned who said that the diet is not sustainable, those types of people are opening the door for people to accept the current standard Western diet. And what does that diet accomplish? It accomplishes uh, obesity and type 2 diabetes. And sure enough, in the type 1 community, we see record levels of obesity and type 2 diabetes. So now people have double diabetes, including in children. So my personal story along those lines is when we started advocating, of course, there was significant pushback from loud parent type 1 advocates who are in in many cases paid by professional diabetes industry companies and so you can find these people all over the place and they had kids too and the vast majority of the kids that followed those diets you can see now on social media and they're not fit healthy looking people and then with with dave and all these other type 1 grit kids they're all lean, strong, athletic, because if you eat protein, you know, they're eating like professional athletes. The professional athletes don't eat Doritos and cookies and cake to try to be like non-athletes. They eat because they want to succeed and they have goals. And that's the way that the, the type one low carb kids eat. Yeah. And so, you know, I had like Dave has he he received both academic and athletic scholarships to attend universities in football and and just for just for um, academics. So you know all all those people that criticized Dave heavily and criticized us heavily um, at the in the end, who was the one that followed a sustainable route? The people who now have raised kids who have weight problems and are developing, surely developing complications of diabetes or a kid who knows so well how to manage his condition that he can go away to college and do it on his own. Like what was the, what was the, the role of the prop, the proper role of the parent there? Was it to teach a kid how to manage their condition for the future or was it to shove their face into a bowl of processed food and get some weird short-term gain uh, at the expense of their entire metabolism. Mm. And this is, again, where I feel like the actual the health problems associated are just dismissed or, or not, not, not even not talked about. I mean, they must be mentioned at some point, but they're so um, downplayed because if parents knew more, I feel like that they might be more motivated to, yeah, um, to actually change. Adi, so how did you go about setting up the type one grit group? Because, you know, it's one thing to read a book that some old guy writes, and it's quite another <laughs> thing to set up a group, to start a YouTube channel, to sort of bring his information to life. And I know, of course, you've said that you, you would have liked to sit down for an hour with someone. Is it, is it all stem from your experience? You were like, I've just got to get this information out there. Yeah, it was just, it was just that. I, we ended up calling Bernstein and saying, look, you got to uh, help break your stuff down a little bit 
on YouTube, get it out into other avenues and we'll do an, ex- we'll do an experiment and put these, um, you know, he was, he was getting old at the time we started, but, um, <laughs> so I felt like there was some urgency. Yes. Little did I know that he, this is 10 years later and he's 89 and he's still exactly the same as far as his cognitive abilities, let alone his physical ability. He's still going down to the Caribbean and playing in the ocean. So he's kind of a force of nature. But I, I thought we needed to sort of capture all the information because I, when I started talking to him, he would tell me things that I didn't know about in the book. And I said, didn't, why didn't you put that in the book? He said the book is, was limited to a certain number of pages or else it would be too big. So I, we said, okay, let's, let's, um, let's start getting this stuff on video. And then, then there was, you know, the grit group started because we were going, uh, to try to meet other people who were parents and, um, that was like a total dead end because the parents were, they, like you said, that was, it was all about how much uh, birthday cake we could get going into the kids and without any discussion of the consequences. And so when we started talking about Dave, this, this wild scene developed where people were threatening to kidnap Dave. <laughs> and it was this crazy situation on social media. Yeah. Um, so, but anyway, the people that I did meet um, that were following Bernstein were type one adults and there weren't many of them, but they were all getting the same result. Yeah. You know, everyone's A1C was like 5.0% or less. And, and we started to, you know, make a little chat room and, and we would go out and we would try to spread, you know, proper information about how to manage the condition. And, um, Every time we would open our mouths, you know, the world, you know, people do not want to have their cake taken away from them. And they, you you can develop a personal narrative, which is based on helplessness. And so when you challenge that narrative that people have carefully constructed over decades, they're going to push back. And, um, so that was a surprise. I thought everyone would want to, uh, Sure, I'll give up cake if I don't have to like die early. But um that wasn't the case. And um so we needed to make a, sp- a special group where you know people had the same values for their kids and for themselves. And the grid group is a little different because it's both parents and kids. If you notice the high carb groups segregate. And that's because the conversations in the parent groups can be quite gruesome. I mean, in the, in the adult groups, as far as the problems that people are having foot prop, like the classic diabetes problems, feet, eyes, and so on. So the parents tend to segregate, but the grid group was the opposite. You know, the, the adults were inspired by these kids who were actually getting it done. And the kids were learning from the adults that they could do it for a long period of time. And there was a real good synergy in the group because of that. So, yeah. So, and then, yeah. And just grew. now there's lots of, there's lots of low carb groups now. There's not just type one grit. So yeah. it, uh, yeah. 
Andrew Kutnick said he was so inspired when he discovered the group, and he and and it was it was a re, yeah it was that real source of um, encouragement and, and inspiration and gave him confidence to talk about his experience um, with us. Which I don't need to tell yeah. you that because I'm sure you've had that conversation with him. So it's yeah, it's amazing what you guys have done. He's about as inspiring a person as you can meet because mm. of his intellect. And, um, you know, he's a truth teller, but you know, when I show Dave, his videos and his pictures, Andrew's also built himself this incredible physique and it's like, okay, you know, Dave, there's like diabetes is not stopping you from attaining this kind of, you know, uh, athletic, um, control over your, your, your body in the future. You know, you can really do anything. So Andrew is like, he's like a, a superstar in the type one world, in my opinion. And he understands everything, right? He's a genius. So yeah, completely. Now, Adi, is there a, like, is there a difference in how you approach this? If you use like an insulin pump versus a, like injecting insulin, like what, are there any issues or any sort of considerations there? Yeah. So in the grid group, it's kind of, I would say, I guess would be 50, 50. So it, it comes down to what sort of gear that you want. Some people prefer gloves and some people prefer mittens, you know, something like that. So I don't see, um, now Bernstein's big concerns with pump is that you can develop scar tissue under the skin which is invisible, and that will degrade the consistent absorption of insulin when you inject so that you won't be able to inject your mealtime insulin and get the same result every lunch. But there are people in the grit group who do use pumps for a long period of time and claim that that is not a problem that they have. Then there are people who do say that. So that's like my caveat to Dave. If Dave chose to start using a pump, he uses injections. My, my advice to him would be like, well, after a couple of years, start looking out for this phenomenon where, you know, it seems like the insulin didn't work that time. Um, that, that's about it. And um, now the beauty of the, the Bernstein is that you can use for your bolus insulin, you use regular. So regular insulin is not only perfect for low carb meals, it's cheap and you can get it over the counter in the United States. You can go to Walmart and get like a ton of insulin for really cheap. So that's a nice benefit. If you want to do that with a pump, what people do is they do this kind of square wave bolus or extended bolus. So you're, you're sort of taking a bunch of these narrow um, insulin action peaks and sort of stacking them up and widening out the action to sort of mimic basically what, what regular insulin or humulin R or novelin R are, um, are doing. So that's what people do. They take multiple doses with their pump, uh, either manually or they use that, that function. And, um, you and know, it and it covers them for the day does it like so you're not using the fast acting stuff that gives a big spike because you don't need it 
but you might okay i did a bad job of explaining that yeah no no, sorry yeah yeah yeah. okay so let's do both cases so for let's do bernstein for both cases so dave dave does mdi multiple daily injections he gets away with one traceba dose every morning Mm -hmm. and that's it but he used to take levomir for his basal insulin and that was three injections a day. Okay. So usually you have to split your basal dose. Then on top of it, you have to take a mealtime bolus insulin. With low carb, Bernstein suggests that you use regular insulin, which is an intermediate acting insulin and perfect for matching the action of protein foods. That's really like the magical thing about his approach is using an intermediate act. Okay. And then he uses fast acting insulin for any corrections that you need along the way. Okay. So Dave carries around three different types of insulin. With a pump, you're just using fast acting insulin. You load up a cartridge with Novolog or Humalog. And then the pump is giving tiny little bits all day long, which constitute your basal injection. So there's the, that's the basal. And then it'll give a big pump when you're doing your 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 mealtime bolus and if you're doing if you're eating like a steak and salad you'll notice that if you give some insulin at up front you might go low because it takes a long time yes there's the steak yeah and here's the insulin for the rapid acting pump so what you want to do is you want to have a bunch of little pumps and you stack them together, and then that ends up, you know, through trial and error, you learn how to cover a low carb meal that way. So that that works. People people get the hang of that pretty pretty quickly too. And Dave wore a pump for a while, and we we got the hang of it. It just became a little bit harder. It became for a kid. It was so easy to give him. I think you call it. Let's see. You call it. Um, I forget the name of regular in New Zealand. We call it Accu Rapid or something like that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Any, yeah. Our, our, like peeps, that. our peeps listening will know. The the ones who need to know will know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not coming to my head, but there yeah. is a there is a version. Yeah. But anyhow, that with with for Dave, he just eats and he takes his injection and then he it's smooth sailing for a couple hours, and then he'll see if he's drifted a little bit. You know, like, I do like obviously a lot of the you know foods we're talking about protein and vegetables. And protein, you get the hang of vegetables, you know, green veggies, very low carbohydrate. What about the sort of net versus total carbohydrate? And I ask that because you know, I put on a CGM and had a low carb protein bar that had net carbs of two grams, and my blood sugar went up to 11 because of the fiber and oh. stuff. And it like you must see people sort of get a little bit confused around stuff like that. 11? As well. Wait, you high. went up to 11? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's very high. It is very high. Yeah, it was crazy. And my normal diet stuff is like normally um, when I'm when I eat my normal foods, it's you know the highest it might get to is like seven point four or something. I don't know. It's you know it sort of stays. It's sort of you know it gotcha. sort of hangs out um, on the lower side if you like. But that yeah, and it, and I put it down to obviously the fiber in the protein bar that they call low carb, but it had this sort of surprising. Um, effect yeah. on my blood sugar. Like, do you see that a bit in your groups and in the people that you talk I think, to? Yeah. So with the, with the type one people, 
they, you know, the low carbers, they don't trust just the carbohydrate count. They want to see the ingredients. And the, the rule that we go by for ingredients is no grain, no starch, no sugar, and no sweet fruits. And so that's the thing. Like people will post like, is this candy bar safe? It says low carb. And people will look at it and say, I don't know about tapioca starch, right? That, that is going to spike you. So people are on to the ingredients primarily. The carb counts are, can be tricky, right? So there's a, you'll find in the social media groups a lot of discussion about those fringy type. Um, and then some people will say, it didn't work for me. We tried it, it didn't work for me. You know, it, it does have this tapioca starch and it did hit hard. And so then, you know, then, then you probably should avoid it, right? See, it's not just, you know, you went, you went up to 11. It's, but for a type one, like for Dave, if Dave goes up to 11, he's going to take hours to get back down. And he's, and he's going to have to do it manually. It's not like, oh, I'll just give myself an injection and then in 90 minutes, I'll be back to normal. No, 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 no. He's got to play this game where he gives an injection and then he watches. And then in 90 minutes, he's still 11 or he went up higher. Or now he's, he's three and crashing, right? So you don't want to be up and then down because you, then you have to play that game. And um, with type one, you're, you're inevitably going to have to play that game. You know, like when I, when I first started helping people, I, I would get like a call from <clears throat> like a friend that I just made in New York, for example. And they would say, oh, my pump broke. And now my blood sugar is like 350 and I need to go to sleep and, and you're in Hawaii. So, you know, it's still early for you. Can you like, I'm going to text you in an hour to see what happened to my blood sugar. Cause I put a new pump on and can you, you know, if I, if you don't get a text, can you call my number? And this is like, this is the kind of life that you, you lead as a type one. It's always this 24 seven battle. Um, so imagine doing that and then losing all the time being like this, this all day long, you know how much work is involved? And, and then, you know, we wonder why, um, you know, not with just the neurochemical stuff that's happening when you do that, but the, just the, the depression that's induced by not having any control. So, and we wonder why, why people with high A1Cs are more depressed. It's because that's a grueling, it not only feels awful, not only doing damage, it, it, it's, it's grueling. Yeah. Right? Yeah, for sure. Um, Adi, I'm mindful of your time. So I just, um, I just really want to finish up by, you know, do you have any, what's your advice for people who, who have been curious about it, but have yet to make the leap, if you like. And obviously, for, and I'm not even just, just talking about uh, parents of children with type 1, but even people who have type 1 who have, who have tried it before but not currently there but feel, like, inspired to sort of do it again. Like, anything that you can sort of say that might, I don't know, move the needle for them? Well, I think that it's possible. So the positive I have is that what we know now is that it's 
it's possible for any person with type one diabetes to be as healthy as any non-diabetic. And, um, you know, Bernstein is that example. He is, you know, he's 89 years old and living this fantastic, exciting life. And, um, you know, working and contributing and doing all these human activities. But we all, we also see so many other examples. You know, Dave is, is like an incredible example of someone who was able to meet all his, um, his academic and athletic goals. And, and there are, there are tons of people out there that are proving, um, that, you know, these flat lines that you see on the CGM, they are everywhere. Uh, and people are, you know, just as I would say that the, the professional diabetes advocates, the ones that are paid by the diabetes industry are so awful because they don't allow this information to get out. On the flip side of the coin, the low carb people are so eager to help people because they've escaped this nightmare themselves and they don't want anyone else to, to have it. So my advice to people is that they can do it and that they should reach out to somebody. The resources are out there on the internet now. They were not out there 10 years ago. We put the resources out there and now there are people out there. And if you, you see one and if you message them on Facebook, there will be a crowd of people on your doorstep to help you learn how to use insulin, learn how to cook, learn how to change your life for the positive. You know, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, that's so great, Adi. And hopefully this warms your heart is that whilst I was just sort of searching the internet um, and just sort of Googled Bernstein's book just to Google it, I have a copy of it actually, I did come across it on the Australian Diabetes Foundation page as a diet to explore if you've got type 1 diabetes. So there was a there was a much more positive spin on, on it. It wasn't front and centre, but it was an option for people, which <laughs> it is way better than the first example example I gave you I think I was surprised that's good yeah yeah that's good um so Adi where can people find you and find information like what, what are the best links for people to sort of to explore if you google my name that's one way yeah uh, you can google type one grit that's another way perfect I think um if you if you want to learn more about how to properly manage the type one con condition then uh you can watch the diabetes university uh, videos on YouTube. Yeah. Um, Dave has a great video for a kid, a teenager, especially he's got a video at low carb, Google low carb down under Dykeman. Okay. Dave Dykeman. Awesome. And it's Dave and Dave's walking through his, his daily routine. Yeah. So he's talking about how he does every, all the mechanical things, Yeah. you know, uh, how he loads his syringes, how he how he gives insulin, how he takes his <clears throat> how he takes corrections, how he corrects for lows, how he interacts with his friends. That's a really good video. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. We, we'll link to all of those things in the show notes. And of course, Dr. Bernstein's book as well. And the paper that was published on Type 1 Grit and your, your study that got headlines in Washington Post was the most emailed study. Uh, yet no one gave you a call about that. So that's yeah, super interesting. So yeah. 
lastly, actually, do you have any uh, projects on the horizon, ideas? Uh, is it just business as usual for you? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, so I have both my sons. I, I'm kind of fading back into my nerd uh, physics <laughs> world. Yeah. And um, but Dave, so you mentioned this pediatric study. So um, that was led by uh, Harvard professor Belinda Lanares, and she's like a real hero. And um, Dave went to study with her this summer um, after his freshman year at um, Baylor. He spent the summer in Boston interning with her. And then I have another son who's not a type one, but he's a senior in high school. And he eats uh, as low carb as Dave does. And um, he's been working with some people in Australia, Gary Fetke, on writing a, a paper on type one. and. Um, a couple other people, Jane McDonald, and then he's been working, we're going to hopefully start working with uh, Dr. Westman on um, a low-carb guideline. So he's, and he's also working with um, Belinda, again, uh, Linares, Professor Linares, on, um, if you, let's see, if you Google Hayden Dykeman physics of injected insulin, he's developed mathematical models discussing everything that we talked about with why insulin works good for low carb. So amazing. Thank you. Both my sons are kind of been taking over for me. That's great. That means that you'll be able to do your theoretical physics, whatever that looks like. And, uh, and, uh, go on a cruise. I understand at some point when, <laughs> when you do your, uh, when you, the when Hayden sort of flies from the nest. Yes. Adi, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, and I think just the more that people have this information out there, the easier it is for them to make that step. Um, that you know, uh, it just makes it so much more accessible. So I really appreciate your time. It's awesome. Okay, it was really, really great. Thank you. team hopefully you got a lot from that either for yourself for a family member uh, or for anyone else that you feel would benefit from this information absolutely tell them to check it out it is just it's super powerful stuff and you might recall and I think I mentioned it in the chat that I also talked to Andrew Kuknick about type 1 diabetes and using a low carb approach for management this was maybe back in 2021, I believe. And Andrew talked about how Type 1 Grit gave him the inspiration um, that helped him with his own sort of inspiration and motivation for following a low-carb approach. So I found that super cool. All right, so next week on the podcast, I talk to um, one of the goats of the physique and body transformation spaces. That is Brandon DeCruz. So um, you are going to love this conversation I have with Brandon. That is next week on the podcast. Until then, you can catch me over on Instagram, threads, and Twitter at Mickey Willardin, over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin nutrition or head to my website mickeywillardin.com don't forget to sign up for my webinar series as we head into february in mondays matter all right team you have the best week see you later